Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason, and with me as usual is Rich. Hello, Rich. What is up? Not a lot. Just, um, you know, enjoying the uh, array of 50-point games that we're getting in the NBA this season. Every time we record a new episode of this, there's uh, a bunch more that are happening in uh, 2019, and uh, um, gives us something that we're looking forward to talking about once we get there, but right now we're in the, I guess, the the post-merger era of 1975 to 1986, talking about the 50-point games of that era where it becomes a – I think the theme for this one is going to be there's no dominant player and 50-point games are going to increasingly come become more rare before we start uh, getting a bunch from guys like Michael Jordan and Dominique Wilkins. Absolutely, yeah. It's going to be an era of, of- – you know, fun names, like different names that we maybe haven't talked about before. But like you said, there's not really like a one guy or a few guys that really dominate it. And the ones that are pretty high on the list aren't necessarily ones that you would consider all time greats in the same sense that like before we had talked about your Wilts and your Rick Berry's and your Jerry West's and your, you know, Elgin Baylor's and those sort of types. You know, this time we're going to talk about like Adrian Dantley, <laughs> you know, who Adrian Dantley is a great player. But is he, you know, an all time, all time great? And not on the level that those guys are. So it is definitely a unique era in that sense. But uh, it's a fun era, too, because there's a lot of uh, a lot of players that we maybe don't have other t- opportunities to talk about that that fit in perfectly in this show. Right. And um, yeah, as you mentioned, you know, the guys who have the most um, during these during these years, uh, Adrian Dantley, George Gervin, Bernard King, each have six 50 plus point games. Bob McAdoo uh, and Pete Maravich all have four. And all these guys are excellent players, you know, great players, but none of them really, other than maybe George Gervin, is really like someone you would think of as like a top fifty all time player. You know, they just right. It's, exactly. it's not that level of guys who are who are getting these, which is um, which is definitely interesting. And yeah, at the in, in this era, um, there are sixty seven total fifty plus point games over these uh, twelve seasons, and they account for 058 percent of all games are uh, fifty plus point games. And if we look at this from uh, the other errors that we're, we're talking about in our show so far. So from 49 to uh, 61, it was 0.94% of all total games. This is, this is, by the way, regular season, not counting um, postseason um, rates. Uh, then from 62 to 66, which, of course, the Will Chamberlain dominant era, 7% of all games were 50-plus point games. Obviously, um, you know, Will accounting for most of that. Uh, and then the last show we looked at, um, 67 to 74, 1.06%. So so definitely lowering the rate um but still you pretty frequent but here we go we that's going to be cut basically in half to 0.58%. So I find that kind of interesting. Part of that is you know we're growing into um but I was going to say we're going to have more games but that's actually not really true because we're about to uh merge leagues and there's going to be fewer games. So the interesting to um it, 
you know, we'll talk about some of the players and some of the key things and maybe maybe we'll figure out a reason why there was this decline, you know, during this era in particular, because it wasn't necessarily a much slower paced league. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I don't know that I can quite right now put our fingers on it all the way. I mean, I guess yeah, like you said, it it, it wasn't like there were some teams, and we're going to talk about some teams and some players, and and uh, you know some some you know you know years where the pace was still pretty high and the scoring was still pretty high. It just for whatever reason, it just wasn't. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just a period where where you know, and and I think a part of it might be that some of the top top players, uh, your Magic Johnson types, who kind of emerges in this era, your Larry Birds, of course, are not known as necessarily those types of scores before we had had guys like. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who who would obviously be you know an unbelievable scorer, and Will Chamberlain, of course, and and guys like Rick Barry and Jerry West, who I mentioned before, guys that were known for scoring outbursts or whatever. Whereas now we're moving into an era where the the top stars are you know someone like a Magic Johnson, who is not going to you know pour in fifty points on a regular basis. He's going to do more of the assisting, the rebounding, kind of all around game in in a sense. But yeah, it is unique, and I don't know that we have like an answer right away for why that uh, you know fifty point games did slow down. Uh, as much as they did, because yeah, the league isn't like the league wouldn't get into its crawl until basically the '90s when it would really become like all right now, like these dudes are these teams are playing for 89 points a game, and like you know you know that's when it really really slows down. You know we see hints of that you know throughout these th- this time period, but not all the way quite yet. So it is definitely unique that that it fell as much as it did. Yeah, and actually now I, I do have the pace stats up, and they they start in '74 is the first year we get official, and in '74 it's one uh, 107.8. And then by 82, we're down to 100.9. And then we're kind of from 81 through 86 here. We're in the 101s, 102. So it does dip a bit. And Mm -hmm. then it's going to basically stay around 199 until it really dips, as you talked about, in the in the mid 90s into the into around 90, even um, 89 one year or so. And, and, And basically up until. Uh, more recent seasons has been in the 90s. So there is a decrease, although it is still a much faster paced league than we um, have seen, you know, really since the the late 80s, you know, even, even up until now when the pace has gone up again, it's still, uh, it was a much faster league in that time. But again, it was a league that was slowing down a bit. So that, that would, I, I think, would um, explain at least part of it. And I think what you're talking about is some of the best players, you know, of the era weren't necessarily the guys who were going to be having 50-point games all the time. You know, Magic Johnson obviously never had one, um, and Bird only really had a few. You know, th- those those guys were doing a lot of other things other than other than scoring, where the, the guys here were mostly known as, you know, primarily scorers who didn't necessarily, you know, always play a complete game. So, exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's dive into the seasons a little bit. Um, the 75 season, uh, we still have two leagues, the uh, six 50 plus point games in the NBA, five in the ABA. That's um, 0.086%. This is the last year of double digit 50 point games until 1987. Um, And then we have uh, three new players in the club. We have uh, George Gervin, who's going to, as we talked about, have quite a few of these. Marvin Barnes, uh, of course, famous ABA name, known for his legendary exploits, uh, mostly off the court, but a few on the court. And then, uh, and then Gail Goodrich. Yeah, so we'll start with Gail Goodrich here, nicknamed Stumpy, which is an unfortunate name given to him by Elgin Baylor for his short legs. He was only six foot one, so man, I'm only like six foot. I don't know what, what would Elgin call me. I'm, I'm afraid. To, I don't know. I'm afraid to know. That's, but uh, I, know. I was also not a, a professional basketball player, but uh, you know, sometimes, well, you know, 
uh, started as a reserve at the Lakers. Uh, then he became a star with the Suns. He would move on to the Suns and then go back to L.A. And that's really where he emerged, I think, as, as kind of a, uh, an all-time great here. He was a leading scorer on the 1972 Lakers title team. Uh, team, of course, won 33 in a row and set the record with 69 wins, only broken pretty recently. Uh, or broken, you know, of course, by the, the Bulls and then broken then later by the, the Warriors. Uh, was first team All-NBA in 1974, oldest of uh, one-time only first-teamers at age 30 as well, which I think is a, a kind of a unique stat. But I guess it makes sense that, you know, if you haven't become a, a, an all-time you know, a first teamer by the age of 30, you're probably not going to be. So, yeah, just interesting again. Uh, that Goodrich, um, then 31, uh, he dropped about 10 pounds for the 1974-75 season, got back to his college weight. So good for him. I, I don't I don't know if I've gotten back to my college weight or if I ever can, but we'll see what happens there. I uh, had a salary dispute with the Lakers in the 1976 season. Uh, team ended up finding him $40,000 for missed time. And Goodrich later sued the team for back pay. Uh, one of the first major free agents to jump teams as well, because he then would go on to sign with the New or- uh, the New Orleans Jazz uh, team with Pistol Pete Maravich. Unfortunately, he missed most of uh, his first Jazz season with an Achilles injury. Uh, and unfortunately, as as you might know, while you're making that connection, they're like, wait a minute, he went to the Jazz. Yeah, yes, one of the compensation picks for uh, the Jazz signing him ended up being Magic Johnson. So <laughs> I think the Lakers were okay with that. But uh, an unfortunate, just another one of the very unfortunate things of the New Orleans Jazz uh, history. Uh, when he retired in 1979, Goodrich was 11th all-time in scoring and 10th all-time in assists, which I think is a little surprising as well. I would never have thought of him as, as being at least that 11th all-time in scoring. Uh, definitely seems to jump out. Uh, when, the, uh, when the Lakers retired his jersey number in 1996, he had jersey number 25. Uh, Eddie Jones, who was wearing it at the time, changed his number to number 6. So that is uh, Gail Goodrich. Are you, are you surprised by the 11th? All time in scoring when he retired? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I knew he was obviously a very good scorer, but yeah, to be 11th and, and 10th all time in scoring and assists, you know, I, I, I didn't think of him necessarily as having that longevity, but he was a fairly effective player, you know, into his uh, mid 30s. His first couple years as a reserve for the Lakers, he didn't really gain much in the contest. He was a little bit like Havlicek in that respect, where, you know, Havlicek was, um, you know, was, was very pretty deep on the bench on those loaded Celtics teams for a year or two and then you know and, and then emerged soon afterwards so Goodrich kind of had uh the same thing but yeah he was definitely carrying those teams you know as West retired before you know Kareem kind of came in um at least on the guard and he was doing a lot of the scoring and obviously uh was a, a pretty good playmaker too to be 11th all-time in assists so um yeah it, it did surprise me a little bit for sure yeah, and then of course, uh, as we, we mentioned, the New Orleans Jazz, you know, signing him, you know, hey, we got the you know, we got this five time All Star, uh, we're teaming it with Pete Maravich, things are going to go well. Yeah, give the compensation picks to the Lakers, who cares? And then yeah, it's it's Magic Johnson, which is one of many unfortunate uh, things that the the New Orleans Jazz uh, went through in their in their era. But again, like at the time, like you can defend that. I mean, Goodrich was was slowing down a little bit. Obviously, he was thirty two uh, after been playing for you know the last ten years or whatnot. But you know, for the Jazz to try to put him together and try to make you know one last thing, and then of course he has his Achilles injury. Uh, Pete Maravich goes through his injuries and stuff. So on paper, like I get it, but yeah, it does in hindsight look kind of bad because you know Magic Johnson ended up being that pick. So you know, if the right. Lakers chose someone crappy, then nobody would care. But if it was, it, it, they picked Magic Johnson. So yeah, and, and the competition wasn't necessarily their choice. I mean, that was kind of chosen for them too. Exactly. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. That, that was in the infancy of free agency. You know, the commissioner was you know making. Those decisions. I mean, sometimes the teams did agree on something. Sometimes it was the commissioner who ended up making the ultimate decision. So, um, and, and they weren't like excited about ha- having guys be free agents. So the the commissioner's penalties ended up, you know, being the competition ended up being pretty heavy in a lot of cases. Uh, yeah. Thankfully, though, (laughs) thankfully, in sports, though, we have gotten over that. And now owners are perfectly happy with players being free agents and and compensating them for what they deserve and making sure that they get a a, a, as much of a slice of the pie uh, as they deserve. So thank God we are over those (laughs) stripes between uh, management and, uh, and, and labor. So absolutely. 
Uh, yeah. Um, the um, so this was uh, so going through some of the games of this uh, season. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had two in uh, January of '75. His uh, second was the last. Uh, 50-plus triple-double in the NBA until the 2017 season. This was the last 50-plus um, point game of his career. This was the 10th of his career. He actually, this was he was still with the Bucks at this point, so he never did it with the Lakers. And at, at the time, he was one of only four players with 10-plus, 50-plus point games, with along with Wilt, uh, Baylor, and Rick Barry. So he had 50, uh, 15, and 11 in this game, also three blocks. Um I was slightly surprised that he never had 50 with yeah. the uh, Lakers. It's, <laughs> That's it's still, nuts. Because yeah. he's going to play another, like, you know, 13 years or whatever. And he doesn't right. ever. I mean, yeah, obviously, the, those last few years in the Lakers, it would it would be very odd for, you know, Kareem to just explode uh, for 50. But, I mean, yeah, he had another, like, real solid, like, five, six, seven years of being, like, a dominant, you know, player and dominant scorer right. uh, for the Lakers. And he never, yeah, he never got to 50 again, which is just fascinating because, yeah, th- this is it in 1975. As a member of the Bucks, yeah. it's just yeah that, that that blew my mind. Also, the last fifty point uh, triple double uh, until two thousand seventeen too. That blew my mind that nobody from nineteen seventy five until two thousand seventeen could do it. Uh, that's just for whatever reason. I don't know why. I was just like, and then for it to be Kareem, that's the guy who did it. Is just I don't know. They're, of all the you know all the combo guards and all the you know f- you know small forwards and guard forwards and all that stuff that that would get fifty that we're going to talk about over the next few episodes for Kareem to be the last one until you know two thousand seventeen. I just I don't know for whatever reason uh, that surprised me. Yeah, uh, and Kareem, interestingly enough, uh, um, he, you know, he he didn't really have like a a huge amount of forty plus point games with the Lakers either. Although he had a couple that were in the high forties against Houston of all teams, like in nineteen eighty six, before that playoff series that they lost. Like he had like forty eight points of one of his last great games. We talked about that um, in a recent episode of looking at some of the best. Um, last great games of all time greats. And uh, so he, he did get close and had a couple of random ones when he's like 38, 39 years old, but obviously didn't quite get there. Um, and, and like we said, you know, a lot of you know, those Lakers teams, especially when magic comes along, you got worthy, you got a lot of guys who can score. I mean, they were getting the, the ball to him and he was obviously scoring, you know, 30 plus point games a lot, but he didn't really, you know, like Kareem, you know, part of his greatness was almost his steadiness. You know, he was more like he didn't necessarily like have the 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 high highs and the low lows, but he was just you know always going to get you you know um, you know steady to high scoring numbers, but not tremendously high scoring numbers, I guess. Yeah, for sure. No, definitely. Yeah. Uh, next, we got Rick Barry uh, in uh, January of 75, 55 points. Uh, he also had five rebounds, five assists, and seven steals, which a, set a NBA record for steals in a 50-plus point game. Of course, steals only recently being tracked uh, by the NBA. I believe this was the second year that was the case. Uh, Jordan would break this record in 1987. This was his uh, 20th career 50-plus point game and his first after age 30. So, um we talked about a lot in the last episode because you know he had um you know he was really he had the most 50 plus point games in the the previous episode but uh you know again uh, i think higher up on these boards than uh, i'd really appreciate before we really dove into this yeah uh yeah he's rick barry uh, remains one of kind of the these weird sort of underappreciated guys and and it popped up a little bit uh 
this week as well. You know, we're recording this the week that uh, Devin Booker had his back to back uh, fifty point games, and I forget. I think the stat was that that he was the youngest since Rick Barry or something like that, or, or I forget exact stat uh, where where, where yeah. Booker and Rick Barry got related. I think it was that one, if I remember correctly. And it led to I was I was kind of reading through the tweets because we have like a little I, I my tweet deck. I have something for fifty point games, so I can like chime in anytime anybody talks about fifty point games. But hey, we have a series about them, you know, because I'm nothing if not a promoter. But uh, uh, it was just interesting to see people be like, oh, Rick Barry, huh? And then like you could see in the tweets like people would start like maybe going to Rick Barry's you know basketball reference page or whatever and then looking at it and going hey Rick Barry's actually really really good like I, I don't know why he gets lost to history as much as he did and I know we even tweeted uh, out uh, you know, our original episode about Rick Barry which I think was the, the first episode we ever did too so um, yep. but for whatever reason I, I don't know why we talk about this every every you know week on the show and I think I guess we don't underrate him but it seems historically like anytime you read about Rick Barry, it seems just yeah, it, it historically just doesn't get maybe uh, the love he should get as as a scorer too, as not only just like kind of an all around player, but a really really great all time scorer. Yes, and of course this was during the year in which you know he won his only championship with right. the uh, Warriors. Um, you know, uh, and yeah, they um, this one uh, marred slightly by only a fifty one uh, true shooting in uh, in in the game. You know, usually you're going to get these; they're going to be above the sixties, somewhere in the seventies and eighties. This one was uh, a little bit below average in terms of that twenty three of forty nine from the uh, field, but you know, still uh, obviously he's putting up numbers in a lot of different uh, categories, and uh, you know, and led his team to a win in that situation. So, uh, so, so not too bad. Um, next we have George Gervin with the first of his 50 plus point games, as we talked about the first also in Spurs history, and he is the fourth George to score 50 plus in a, uh, in a game. So, uh, joined, uh, uh George Mikan, of course, um, <laughs> George McGinnis and George Yardley. That's good. The, the ongoing George, uh, are we going to, did Paul George ever have in uh 50 and would he, would he be eligible or are we only doing, only doing first names. I mean, I understand if it's only first names. I get it. I'm just, you know, trying to keep the leaderboards yeah. going because I think it might be over. I think we might be done after Gervin, right? I, I'm uh, blanking on uh, other you know, prominent Georges that scored 50 are, points. Are there going to be any more Georges? Yeah, I, no. And, and and by the way, Paul George has never uh, had 50. There you game. go. Okay, so yeah, he's not even eligible. Is, uh, yeah. Right, which which is a little surprising, actually. Um, for sure. Yeah, it's so um, <laughs> going back to my uh, – yes – uh, so then we have a couple from Julie Serving, both in February of 1975. Uh, the first was on Valentine's Day, four overtimes uh, against the San Diego Conquistadors. He had 63 points, 23 rebounds, and eight assists in this game. Uh, in four overtimes, it tied Bob Cousy's record for most minutes in a 50-plus point game, 66 minutes. Um uh, we we don't have him in his record in every instance, so but although I, I again obviously four overtimes is a pretty rare, so that, that would uh, be unlikely to have been equaled in uh, that case. And then uh, eight days later, on his on his twenty uh, fifth birthday, also against the Conquistadors, he um, had fifty one nineteen and four, also four blocks, and he uh, had eighty six percent true shooting, which sets a record for best true shooting in a uh, in a fifty point uh, game. So. Yeah, it's an awesome. I mean, that's a really great night too. When you look at the numbers, yes. I mean, nineteen to twenty-three from the field. I mean, that is that is good. Right. That's that's living. <laughs> that is a yeah. good one. And then also uh, thirteen of of uh, fifteen from the free throw line too. So just yeah, that's a it's a nice yeah. day at the <laughs> against the conquistadors in San Diego. So right, and we got Marvin Barnes uh, in March of seventy-five, um, fifty-four points, twenty-three rebounds, uh, only fifty-plus for the Spirits. Uh, franchise at least when they were in st louis and the only one of his career which you know not that surprising given his short career but 
if you think of the legend of, uh, you know, he had established in the ABA where he could, you know, just, uh, you know, just do all these crazy things, just could show up at the arena, you know, right as right as game is beginning and then drop you huge numbers. You you would think, oh, yeah, he had a, he had quite a few 50 plus point games, but uh, but o- only one there. So although uh, it's certainly a good one. Yeah, it is interesting because he averaged, you know, 24 uh, points per game in both of his M- ABA seasons. So, yeah, you would think that, you know, that's pretty prolific scoring there. Two time all star, of course, that maybe he would have run into a few more of the 50 point games. Uh, but unfortunately, that did not happen. And then, yeah, obviously, his NBA career didn't go quite as well as uh, no. his ABA career because uh, <laughs> things were a little bit more strict there and he was a little less interested in, in you know, following rules by that point. So, uh, right. yeah, things just kind of unfortunately didn't because, yeah, you, you look at him as a guy who, you know, at, at, you know, in his two ABA years, he's 22 and 23 years old. You're thinking, man, this guy's, you know, in the peak of his career. And if he got things together, could really, you know, become, you know, one of the greats. And then obviously just. Yeah, it didn't did not work out that way, unfortunately yes. for uh, old bad news Barnes. But uh, at least we have those two ABA seasons to look at. So, yeah. So Bob McAdoo with uh, fifty another fifty twenty game in March of seventy five. Gil Goodrich, as we mentioned, fifty three uh, late in March of seventy five. George McGinnis with the last fifty point game of his career, and this is the uh, the only known instance of an ABA fifty plus uh, point game triple double um so kareem had the last one for the nba and then uh mcginnis had the last one total until 2017 uh, in the aba um he had uh he had uh 51 uh 17 rebounds 10 assists three blocks and six fouls however the as uh i'd forgotten briefly until i thought more about it is uh, the aba of course had no foul outs so he did not uh, foul out in uh in this game so uh so so there are and it, it's huh. we'll get into it <laughs> i don't know if i ever do that until just right now yeah yeah, yeah. that's awesome we'll, we'll, <laughs> yeah we'll get into it in uh, i believe a little bit later but there are it is very rare for there to be a foul out in a um you know in a 50 plus point game obviously you're gonna have to play most of the game to get 50 plus points so huh i wonder like so there had to be some Man, I'm <laughs> like there had to be some sort of rule in place because you can't just have like a goon yeah. go out there and just fall like crazy. Like uh, you, you get technical fouls after um, six, I believe. OK, so, OK. So you, yeah. you could stay in the game, but it's like a terrible idea to continue to foul. So, OK, I you know, right. I don't mind that. Actually, that's kind of OK. Cause, yeah, cause well, a lot of people like that idea. Yeah, because then it kind of takes a little bit of the aggressiveness away when a guy's got like, you know, he's up against the foul out or whatever, because you don't want to lose that guy. But, you know, there's some times where you'd be like, yeah, we'll take a T. You know, we'd rather keep, you know, Dikemi Mutombo in the game and take a T instead of, you know, worry about uh, having him out of the game. So, OK. I guess I enjoy that. that. That's fine. I just I was just thinking of the idea of like <laughs> just anarchy, which would make sense in the ABA for there just to not be right. any fouls and just guys just shoving each other. And, you know, he's got eight fouls. And it's OK. So that makes a little sense about the T. But, yeah, there, there's times where, you know, you'll take a T to keep your, your guy in the game. And then to wrap things up in uh, 75, Bob McAdoo with a uh, with 50 and 21. Uh, and this is in the playoffs against the Washington Bullets, uh, the 18th in uh, playoff history. And, and the Bullets played the, uh, or excuse me, the Braves played the Bullets very tough in that uh, series. Although the the Bullets ended up winning it and going to the uh, NBA Finals, but they would lose to Rick Barry's uh, Warriors. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go. All right, so. Uh, New year, a final final year for the ABA, 1976. We have uh, three 50-point games in the NBA, two in the ABA. We are down to 0.48%, which is a, a pretty dramatic decline there. Uh, there are fewer ABA games because the league was contracting at that point. Um, and then the uh, the new players to the 50-plus-point uh, game club are David Thompson and then, the, uh, and then the Warriors' Phil Smith. 
Yeah, let's get on with Phil Smith because he's uh, he's one guy that always kind of pops up on whenever you look at like most like ridiculous or most random, you know, 50 point scores. A lot of times you do see Phil Smith go up there, but uh, he had a pretty good career. So we'll talk about it here. Uh, second round pick of the Warriors in 1975, one of two rookies and seven players under 26 in the rotation of that championship team, which is pretty awesome to, to, to know how they just kind of put together this incredible young you know duo and stuff. But uh, uh, he had been a local star with uh, the University of San Francisco as well as same college of, of, of Bill Russell. Uh, to he emerged as a starter in 1976, I uh, shared leading scorer duties with Rick Barry uh, and was second team all NBA uh, for the best regular season team. Uh, he was known for his post-up game. Uh, you know, Coach Al Edel said that he, uh, he would take people inside and just jump over them. Uh, all started in 1976 and 77. By then, the Warriors still had Barry, uh, Smith, uh, Jamal Wilkes, and five under-28 players from that title team. And um, they had added future stars like Gus Williams and Robert Parrish as well. Uh, so that seems like, man, that's a dynasty in the making. Yeah, that didn't uh, that didn't quite work because they managed to squander all that away. Of course, Parrish sent away and, and just nothing made out of any of those guys. Uh, and you made a little note here that we we could really use a book uh, on this team because it is it, it is pretty awesome that like they win a title you know they keep adding talent they keep adding talent they keep adding talent like you would think this is the dominant team of the late seventies and the early eighties and it wasn't because you know it was the Warriors and you don't remember the Warriors in the in the early eighties right. because they just yeah they found a way to just completely. Uh, and then pretty much be bad for the next two decades until uh, Steph Curry, until this modern era. So that's a uh, Warriors basketball, unfortunately. But uh, it's, a, it's a good little note there about the, the 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 team. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating team when you look at you know how much good talent they had and how much good young talent they had. That you you would assume, yeah, this team's ready to go for the next ten years. Yeah, you know, you know Barry obviously was getting older by then, so um, you know he, he wouldn't necessarily have been able to carry them. But they had other guys, you know. Um, Wilkes, obviously, who went to the Lakers in free agency and, you know, some other guys who they lost. They certainly had, seemed to have the talent where they could have been, you know, competitive for quite a long time. And even in 77, you know, there uh, there were so many good teams of that season. I mean, obviously, the Blazers get so much attention there, but the Warriors were really good. Uh, you know, the the Sonics were emerging a bit. They, they would obviously get really good the next year and, and, and go to the finals. You know, there was a lot of teams. Uh, I, I always say that, uh, you know, breaks of the game definitely um, – could have been written about several teams of that of the late seventies because the Blazers were a fascinating team, but there were so many other fascinating teams of that era as well. And it's about the NBA as a whole. So the, he dives into a, a lot of those stories, but the Warriors are definitely one that uh, you know there, there's so much, so many interesting players that kind of pass through there, and, and such an interesting story you know of that team. And, and I think Barry, as we've talked about plenty of times, is a guy who you know his career could use so much more exploration because you know, it is fascinating in so many ways. Absolutely. We'll get back to uh, Phil Smith here. He uh, he unfortunately ruptured his Achilles tendon before the 1980 season uh, and was really never quite the same after that. He played four more seasons with the Clippers and the Sonics. Uh, Al Adels, who we said again, his coach, uh, said, had not been for the Achilles injury, I really believe that he would have been one of the greatest players in the game over time. Uh, unfortunately, Phil Smith died of cancer at age 50 in uh, 2002. He had a five-year battle uh, with bone marrow cancer at that point, too. Uh, and then real quickly, you got this from the San Francisco uh, 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 San Francisco Gate, Gate. Uh, SFGate.com. Yeah. Yeah, uh, his former UC, uh, USF coach, Bob Gallard, uh, finally recalled a humorous incident uh, that, uh, in 1975 when Smith was wed to his college girlfriend, Angela, uh, who he met at USF. Uh, it was a rare hot day in San Francisco, and he was about to take his vows. Smith passed out and had to be propped up by his Warriors teammates, which is awesome. Uh, Gallard says, I couldn't stop laughing. I told him, Phil, you've made every clutch shot, defended the best scorers to become the go-to guy. Now here, all you had to do was say, I do, and you fainted. And he just looked at me with that sheepish grin. So that's... <laughs> That's pretty awesome there to Yeah. I like the the getting propped up. Like was he was he awake or was he just kinda like I don't I I just yeah, that's a slow woozy, you know, just need uh, <laughs> need some help standing up, I guess. <laughs> you know. Yeah. 
Was it the hot day, Phil? I mean, let's be honest. How, yeah. How hot really was it, Phil? Or were you just yeah. you know, a little nervous about this uh, this whole wedding thing? But uh, it's pretty yeah. great. It's I understand. Story. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. I was, We've I was been nervous there. Yeah, myself. I get yeah. it. Yeah, sure. You know, I I said, uh, instead of saying with this ring, I said with this thing, Ivy Wade. So, <laughs> well, yes. it's a thing. It, it's, you're not yeah, it's incorrect. Thing. You're not incorrect. Yeah. So, um, right. yeah, when I proposed to Michelle, I just forgot to say anything. I just like propose and she was like yeah i was like oh yeah, yeah. Right, right 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 yeah yeah <laughs> like i like, forget that's what you're supposed to do is, is, is right do the thing. actually <laughs> ask yeah. yeah yeah right you know yeah. but you Here's know it's, it's tough yeah. it's, it's it's not like the movies people it's hard <laughs> no it, it's challenging yes so uh so looking at uh, the games from 76, as we mentioned, there are only five of them. Uh, Bob McAdoo um, early on has another 50-20 uh, uh, game. Uh, it was his fourth 50-point uh, game of that time. Also, the fourth time he had reached 50-20, which he has more 50-20s than anyone other than Will Chamberlain and Elgin Baylor. So uh, I was a little surprised by that. Yeah, I, I am. A, I'm a little. Yeah, it's it's a sp- certainly with this year, of course, having as few uh, as they do. But yeah, I'm a little surprised as well that... Um that McAdoo has as many of those as he does. He would not, right. if you had told me, hey, who's got, you know, who's got 50 and 20s, like, yeah, Wilt obviously would be up there. Baylor would be up there. A bunch of other guys would be up there. But I don't know that, yeah, I don't know that I would come up with Bob McAdoo as kind of right. the first one or one of the first, you know, five names that I would give you. Yeah, and I guess I think of McAdoo as more of an outside big man as opposed to an inside big man. Although obviously on defense, he's, you know, he's guarding, he's going to be closer to the rim than he would be on offense. Right, right, right. A lot of the offensive rebounds, but yeah. Uh, I just thought that was interesting. Um, and then Phil Smith, uh, as we mentioned, um, when he had 51, his career high up to that point was 27. So Right, and that's why he appears there. on a lot of those lists. When you, when you see like people that just kind of do like basic sort of, hey, here's the most surprising 50-point game scorers, Phil Smith pops up a lot because he wasn't like – but he was a very good player too. And, and that's one right. of the things why I kind of challenge it a little bit. I'm like, nah, I don't know if he's like that much of like, oh, my God, like an anomaly. Like Tracy Murray, right. yes. Like Tracy Murray is an anomaly. Tony Delk is an anomaly. We'll talk about – you know, we, we talked about those guys, but Phil Smith – uh, maybe unfairly gets kind of lumped in there, even though he was, you know, a two-time All-Star. But he wasn't like he wasn't known as like this. And, we, and we, I think we talked about him a little bit in in our unlikely fifty-point score thing. Is that he just wasn't like a dude that you thought could get fifty. He was like a very good scorer that could do, you know, twenty-five, thirty. But the idea that he would just explode for fifty kind of seemed rare at that time. So and right and, and what it happened, you know, he didn't have much of a reputation. This helped cement his reputation sure. as you know a really good scorer, really good guard. He he was you know emerging over you know a month or two before then. I mean, he'd hadn't even had twenty points in a game up until I think late in his rookie season or you know early on in the seventy six season, and then he just kept you know pushing it and pushing it until he got fifty, and then you know had some big scoring binges over the next couple of, of seasons, which we'll, we'll dive into. Um, next, we have Julius Irving in January of 76, the uh, last 50-point game of his career, as we mentioned on a previous episode, never had one in the NBA. In this one, he had uh, 51 points, 12 rebounds, 8 assists, and 4 blocks. Um, this is against the, the Spurs, uh, actually, and um, this was, uh, again, in the ABA in the last season of the um, in the ABA. And then uh, David Thompson, January uh of um, 1976, his uh, first of his career. Um, this is the last ABA 50-point um, game in its history. And then he had uh, 50 points, zero rebounds, four <laughs> assists, and three steals. It is the first the, that we have in our database. Now, we don't have rebounds for some of the games, so it's possible that it happened otherwise. But it's the first that we know of where there were uh, no rebounds. And um, he was a 17 of 20 from the field. And... Um, 
16 of 19 from the free throw line. His uh, true uh, shooting percentage was 88%, which is the, at the time, was the best in um, in history. He had just eclipsed uh, Julius Irving's mark that was set earlier in the uh, in the year before then. I mean, Will Chamberlain had uh, had set a record. So, uh, and that would last until 1995. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an awesome game he had, too. Uh, as far as the zero rebounds, though, I did want to just briefly kind of look at, because that's like, Zero rebound. Like, you got to get lucky and just one, one bounce into your lap or whatever, but apparently not. Uh, other ones, uh, Damon Stoudemire in 2005 uh, had 50, uh, 54 points, zero rebounds, only one assist, too. So Damon was just going out there to feast. He wasn't right. looking to do yeah. anything else, which is weird considering it's Damon Stoudemire. <laughs> like, how did you not get more than one assist? Like, aren't you the point guard? But whatever. Uh, Kobe Bryant, 61 points, uh, 2009, uh, zero rebounds, uh, zero, uh, yeah, zero rebounds as well. And then Damian Lillard, uh, 2016, 51 points uh, with zero rebounds as well. But he also had, he had seven assists and six steals but zero rebounds that's yeah. a that's a very unique game here but yeah that, that david thompson game i mean 17 of 20 from the field you know 16 of 19 from the free throw line that's yeah, that's feasting pretty well but uh how do you not get one rebound <laughs> like hey, does it just have to happen like don't you just miss, like right I, I guess like uh, what actually benefits his like lack of rebounding is that he didn't miss any shots because like you, you know the easiest way to you know, probably get a rebound is like you, you you know you follow up on your own miss or whatever but he didn't miss any shots he missed only three so that's probably a, a, a big reason why but uh it's pretty interesting and, and he celebrated my birthday in 1976 too with this uh 50 point yeah. game unfortunately i hadn't been born yet or i was gonna no. be born for another 11 years but he, he knew he knew hey he knew he, yeah. he, he knew he knew that someday <laughs> you know you were gonna be around he wanted to celebrate that you know? well thank you david i appreciate it so yeah he, he, very much so uh and then bob back could do last um 50 point game of his career 52 11 and three uh and then uh uh, the because of McAdoo, the Braves actually have more 50-plus point games than the Hornets, Grizzlies, Pelicans, and Clippers, if you consider since you know 1980, <laughs> and Raptors, and as many as the Mavs, Wolves, and Sonics, not counting the Thunder, in all of their histories. So That's unbelievable. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that's, that's kind of funny uh, how that worked out. Oh, that is that's nuts. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, that's Buffalo Braves, but I guess it makes. I mean, it, it again, like we said, it makes sense because like the Hornets really kind of come up in an era where it's pretty slow these days. They should be catching up a little bit now, but they're you know a lot of those teams are are you know <laughs> not great right now. But yeah, the Pelicans should have a few more. But, but I get well with their weird history. Never mind. I don't want to get into the the Hornets Pelicans yeah. thing. We're not going to do it no, right now. That's fine. We're, We're not going to do it right now. We're not going to do it. But the Sonic should have more. The Wolves should have more. The Mavs should have more. That's right. all I'll say. So right. All right. Fair enough. So. um Going into 1977, the first year, of course, after the merger, and we only have five, um, although the the uh, percentage increases because of there being fewer games, uh, uh, 0.55%. Uh, and Pete Maravich has four of the five, as uh, he had a real big scoring binge between um, December 14th, 1976, and um, March 18th, 1977. Uh, included in this is on... Uh, on December 25th, so not your birthday, but close to your birthday, uh, his, he, where he set his career high, uh, 68 points, uh, also six rebounds, six assists, three steals, and two blocks. Uh, he fouled out on a pretty dubious call, or he might have broken 70 in this game, and it's only the third recorded instance of a player fouling out in a 50-plus point game. 
Yeah, so, so why we need that ABA. We need those no foul outs here. We could add 70 here, right. guys. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, exactly. I'm now team no foul outs. So, especially right. with this, knowing that, yeah, we could have gotten 70 from Pete uh, Mirovich here. And then, yeah, maybe even a little bit more uh, as well. I mean, yeah, there's, you know, he's playing 48 minutes in this game or whatnot, but or 43 minutes, I should say. I'd mention to see what he would have done in those those last few minutes had he, you know, stayed in the game. So, that stinks. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, Phil Smith also has his, his second and final 50 plus point game uh, in his career in December of 1976 as well. Well, so uh, so even yeah, he's one of the surprises, but he's actually on the list twice. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, and then, yeah, this is the first time that there are no new members to the club since 1967. So um, so because Maravich and Smith both had had previous instances. So, um, yeah, not, not a lot to, to say about this era. You know, I, I don't know. Um, you know, again, maybe it's because of the way that talent is distributed in the league where, you know, this is an era of a whole lot of parity. This is so maybe your teams are slightly more balanced and there's less opportunity for teams to, um, you know, have these big games. Obviously, Maravich and the Jazz are kind of an exception to that because it's kind of kind of the Pete show for the most part, especially with, uh, you know, get a good sideline for uh, this season. But, you know, th- this was probably Maravich's best, se- you know, most complete season where he really kind of fulfilled the promise that he had yeah. that he could as a player, uh, you know, 77, 78, you know, uh, and then, you know, kind of 78 season was derailed by a, an injury where they you know could have made the playoffs and unfortunately was unable to carry them. But yeah, this was kind of the, these two seasons were really where he kind of fulfilled his promise the most before, you know, injuries and other issues caught up with him. Yeah, there's definitely uh this does feel like the most complete, like you said, Maravich year. This feels like what he could have been or should have been or what people wanted him to be or, you know, whatever kind of narrative you want uh, to have around Pete Maravich. Like this felt like the year where he kind of put it all together. And and it felt like a year where, where OK, things are maybe getting stabilized here a little bit in, in, in New Orleans. Maybe things are going to be a little bit better for this franchise and whatnot. And then, yeah, obviously, you know, it would, it would not go that way on uh, many other issues would, would, would kind of spring up here. But uh, it does feel like the first year where they, like, that promise is really fulfilled and and it feels like, all right, the things that, the, you know, this team has done and this franchise has done is, has finally paid off. And Maravich could be, you know, one of the, the end is emerging stars but of course yeah that would that would not come to be so yes yes so uh i think before we dive into the most famous moment of uh of this season i think we should we should go through since it happens right at the end we should talk about the games that happen in uh 78 um rick barry has his first 50 plus since 1975 in the the beginning of the 78 season um, and Calvin Mur- Murphy, he's uh, breaks through with a 57 um, point performance, also uh, six rebounds, uh, two assists. Interesting for a uh, a guard of his size to have uh, six rebounds and only two assists. But uh, but there you go. That, that was the first um, for the Rockets actually in Houston. And then uh, Rick Barry has his 22nd and last 50 plus point game in March of 78. And at age uh, 33 years and 362 days, so very close to his uh, 34th birthday, he breaks Sam Jones's mark as the oldest player to score uh, 50 in a game. And that would last until uh, Alex English would break it in 1989. Yeah, that's and, good. You know, yeah, get some old guys in there. Yeah, and it's it's not. And we're we're gonna we have a little bit of stats uh, later about um you know the ages of people you know scoring fifty plus points per game and 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 it is certainly it definitely skews young as you would as you would imagine. So this is definitely a, a great accomplishment for Barry. Yeah, he also had nine uh, points and nine assists in that game, so very narrowly misses a uh, triple-double. Uh, John Williamson also uh, breaks into the uh, club. We'll have more on on him in a little bit, but he is the first, first post-merger ABA player to score 50 in the NBA. Um, becomes the 60th player uh, ultimately to cross that mark. 
And this happens against his former team, and we'll talk more about the circumstances about that the uh, against the Pacers um, in just a little bit. But and then we get into the famous night of David Thompson and George Gervin. Oh yes, we got to get to this one. This is a a famous one, uh, f- one of the more famous. I, I don't know. I, I always think of this moment like I love this game and I love this idea and I love everything about it of, of you know, <laughs> George Gervin and David Thompson, uh, you know, having historic scoring bidges on the same day trying to go for the scoring title. I like this. Like, I, I what are your thoughts on this? Like of guys being like, no, we got to just like feed this guy so he can win the scoring title. Do you like it or, 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 or dislike it? Because I could see some people not really enjoying it because it is kind of like feasting on like, you know, personal accomplishments. But I, I love it. I mean, I'm, I'm all for it. Where, where, where do you kind of stand on it? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm totally for it and, and cool with it, but it also, like, depends a little bit on circumstances. Like, I mean, these were obviously games where there was really nothing on the line, so it didn't necessarily matter if the teams won or lost. Um, you know, when it gets – when you're getting to the kind of point where, like, your team is fouling in situations that don't make sense so you can get another <laughs> possession so you can get – Is there a recent example you're trying to bring up here? Or what, what are we discussing Maybe. Here? There might be some <laughs> examples of that. We, like, we get it, I, yeah, that, that would actually – might be a, a good you know show topic or subtopic at some point to get into a few of the circumstances where that has happened. Now, it didn't really happen in either one of these cases. No. These were just – you know, they just – you know, the guy got the ball. He scored. I mean, in, in both cases, their teams ended up losing. One of them was a very close game, you know um, – and it was competitive down the stretch. The other one was was more of a blowout. But um, yeah, I mean, I I think in either one of these cases, I don't I don't see anything wrong competitively in that situation. I think if you're trying to, you know, pervert the spirit of the game in some respects, I I, I don't think just like giving it to a guy and say, hey, you know, you score and let's do this is inherently doing that. But there are times when within that strategy, you can do things that you kind of take away from it, which I, I think would be bad. But yeah, I don't have any issues with how, you know, either one of these things went down. I, I think in the, the context, it was perfectly defensible in both cases. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, so we'll get into these here a little bit. They were uh, 14 points apart uh, going into this day. Uh, Thompson, 73 points for him. Nuggets were in Detroit for a day game. Uh, no TV crews uh, for what seemed like a meaningless game on the on the same day. So uh, John Havlicek was playing his his final game as well. So they decided, yeah, that's the thing we want to get some, <laughs> you know, some publicity on. And who cares about this Nuggets-Detroit Pistons game? And, and I get it, but... Uh, yeah, it didn't uh, didn't work out unfortunately because there is no footage of this game, which which just absolutely stinks. Is that we can't see this one? Uh, his coach, uh, David Thompson's coach, Larry Brown, talked to Thompson uh, for the game and asked him if he really wanted to go for it. Uh, Thompson said he just wanted to play, and whatever happened, would happen. Well, what happened was is Thompson had 32 points in the first quarter, setting an all time record, uh, and 53 points in the first half. So it seemed like, hey, you know what? At this point, let's just go for the you know the, the record here. Let's see what we can do here. Uh, he went 13 of 14 from the field, uh, being blocked on one dunk attempt. Uh, he was six. Six of six in the free throw line in the first quarter. He made 20 of his first 21 shots. He was absolutely on fire. Uh, he played 43 out of 48 minutes. I uh, said, uh, when I came out for those five minutes, my teammates would treat me like the way baseball tra- players treat pitchers, throwing a no-hitter late in the game. They wouldn't talk to me. They wouldn't even sit near me, fearing some sort of basketball voodoo jinx. So that's pretty awesome. A crowd of 300 people. <laughs> 300 people showed up at Denver's Stapleton International Airport that Sunday night. Uh, Bob King, executive VP of the Nuggets, was the first to greet uh, David Thompson and... Uh, uh, Larry Brown as they exited the plane. Uh, Carl Shear was there as well. Uh, as I was walking down the runway, microphones and tape recorders were being thrust in my face. Thompson said, I just feel great being associated with a player like Wilt Chamberlain, he said, assigning autographs on all sides. So, of course, he gets a big 73 points. He gets the scoring title, so he thinks, kind of. He's 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 feeling all nice and good and feeling all great and all right. Yeah, like he had a hot first quarter, a hot first half. Scored 73, all-time great scoring binge. But... 
there's another game going on. George Gervin is going to play in New Orleans in the Superdome, and he is going to score 63 points. Doug Moe was the coach of the Nuggets, of course, and uh, of course, he and Larry Brown were uh, close friends and rivals. Uh, Gervin needed 53 points to win the scoring title. He missed his first six shots, so he kind of assumed, ah, this isn't going to happen tonight. Sorry, guys, not working. But then Gervin says that Pete Maravich injured him on the bench, was cheering him on uh, and wanted him to break the record. So Gervin would go and break Thompson's record for points in a quarter with 33 and also had 53 by halftime. Uh, Thompson said he tried to get the game on the radio, and once he heard that uh, that Gervin had 53 points by halftime, he pretty much knew it was all over. Uh, once Gervin had 59, he asked the coach if he could get a few more just in case they miscounted, which I think is an incredible story. Uh, so then he got, of course, the 63. So so I love that because there's a there's a little mini doc that uh, that you link to. I guess we could try to link to it in the show doc as well, uh, where Gervin says like, "Yeah, I got to you know I got to the 59, but I wasn't sure if they miscalculated." So he asked if he could just get uh, just a few more points there just to make sure. So that's how he gets to the 63, which I find an incredible story here. Uh, Gervin took 49 shots in 33 minutes, uh, which is 1.48 field goal attempts per minute, even more than Wilt's 100, which is at 1.3. And both Gervin and Thompson, we should say, were inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 1996. So fitting that they came in uh, together as well. But yeah, this is an all-time great game and an all-time great uh, basketball moment to me, too. It's it's just it's awesome knowing these two dudes are just going at it. It would have been better if we had like TV so we could kind of see or if they're playing at the same time. So you could see them kind of, you know, go back and forth or the announcers kind of talk about it. But uh, right. still works. It, it kind of works a little bit, too, in that mystery, too, with Thompson not knowing and getting in the car and everyone's like got champagne. And he's like, eh, you know, I don't, I don't know yet. Like, let's let's wait and see. But uh, yeah, it's just an all time fun moment uh, in NBA history. Right, exactly. Yeah, it, it would be awesome if there was footage, but some of, in some respects, it's almost better that there isn't, just because you, you the can legend use your imagination. Of it. For yeah, the happens. legend of yeah. it works a little bit better. Where Gervin, you know, get, kind of gets word, you know, some whispers, "Hey, Thompson scored seventy three or you know what I mean, like a little bit. Because like if it was out in the open and they knew, and everyone was on their phones, everybody was recording it, it, you know, it'd be fun. But like, I like the idea too, where it's just like they're not quite sure, you know, exactly. Like Thompson's in a car, like you know, trying to find the game on the radio, and then someone you know finds him and says, "Hey, Gervin's got you know," like it, it kind of adds to the legend that. That maybe there isn't any TV and there isn't any uh, any radio or there, there's radio for it, but no TV uh, footage of it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it'd be really cool to be able to, of course, have seen it and have been there, and it'd be awesome. But um, uh, it's almost like one of those things where, like, if you if you saw, you know, them always going to these guys and these guys just jacking up all these shots, you know, especially like Gervin. Like Gervin just took an incredible amount of you know, shots. I mean, he had 49 shots in like in 33 minutes. Um, you know that that might not be quite as fun to watch if if you actually have to experience it. But, <laughs> right. um, although you know, seeing again, see, seeing guys. You know, it, the funny thing is, you know, Gervin breaking Thompson's you know record for points in a quarter that he had set five hours earlier. You know that that, that kind of thing is is really cool. After you know, Thompson had broken Wilt's record that had been set you know fourteen years earlier or um, fifteen years earlier. So yeah, that's um, you know that, that that's pretty fun for sure. Absolutely. Let's do a quick little side here. Uh, look at some stats for this era and how they compare all time and also to 2019 as we're looking at this year. Uh, win percentage in this era, 50-point games, 71.6%. Uh, all time, that is 72.5, so kind of right in line there. A little bit less than, than the all-time numbers. Uh, compared to this year, which I think is going to be an interesting case when we eventually do look at this year's 50-point uh, games, this year, win percentage in 50-point games, 57.1%. Like, almost, yes. like you might, you're almost not guaranteed a win if one of your players 
Twitter scores 50 points. Uh, and given the streak that Devin Booker's on right now, like we could maybe see that thing get to, you know, really close to 50%. Uh, I'm hoping for under 50% because that would just be an incredible topic to talk about. Is like, you know, you score 50 and you might lose you know, more often than not. So, uh, yeah. And by the way, by, by this year, we mean 2019 for the. Uh, correct. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. But, yeah. Not, yes, not, so. not 1978. Yeah. No, this, um, right. By, by 2019. Sorry. Uh, position wise, uh, for this era that we're talking about, these, uh, 1975 to 1986 uh, forwards uh, dominate a little bit here. They have 16 uh, of these 50-point games. Also, forward guards, as designated by Basketball Reference, they have 12. And guard forwards, 10. Uh, guards, just simple guards, 10. Uh, center forwards, 8. So, again, not pure centers, but kind of, you know, swing men there. Centers forwards, 8. Uh, small forwards, 3. Shooting guards, 2. Centers, just pure centers, 2. And then forward centers, 2. So, I think this is uh, an interesting one because uh, for the first time, really... It is not the big man now. It is It is now the guards, the shooters, the small forwards or whatnot. But we're going to talk about it a little bit, though, because it wasn't because they were just shooting more threes or, you know, obviously with the three-point line, you know, coming in soon or the ABA obviously having the three-point line. It's not really that because we're going to talk about the three-points made in the era. They're not very high. It's just for whatever reason, maybe less dominant big men, more, you know, scoring from all across the court. But, yeah, it, it has become now sort of the forward guard uh, dominant, you know, scoring era versus the centers really just, you know, lop it in there to Wilt or, or whoever and let him kind of dominate. Those days are... Uh, are over. Uh, true shooting percentage in this era, the 1975 to 86, 70.86. Uh, true shooting percentage all time, uh, 66%. And then true shooting in 2019, 71.53. So this actually falls more in line. This uh, era falls more in line with what we're seeing right now uh, with true shooting percentage versus what it does all time. Uh, the points, I just wanted to see how many, you know, obviously they scored 50 plus, but how how much above 50 plus. Uh, in this era, 53.4, so just about 3.4 points over uh, the 50 point threshold. Uh, all time, 54.1. And this year, uh, 2019, 54.2 uh, is your your points per game average. So I, I I find it interesting that the 2019 and all time numbers are almost identical, and this year uh, is about one point below that. But uh, not much deviation though. Uh, uh, you know, people can kind of stick towards that 50. Uh, Total rebounds in this era. We mentioned a few games where there were no rebounds. Uh, 8.9 uh, rebounds per game in 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 score in 50-point scores in, in this era. All-time, 12.84, obviously propped up by guys like a Wilt and, and Kareem and, and those sort of guys and your big men. Uh, because 2019, we see that number fall back pretty much to what it was in this era as well at 8.5. So 8 is, is kind of what it was you know, in, in 2019 and what it is in this era as well. Uh, assists per games in this era, 3.7. Assists per game uh, in 50-point games all-time, 4.2. And this year, we see a huge little increase there with uh, 5.8 on 2019. Now, this one was really interesting. Three-pointers made in this era, 1975 to 1986, 0.4. <laughs> 0.4 three-pointers made uh, in this era of 50-point games. All-time, that number and, rises. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, and obviously, you know, up until 80, there are no three-pointers in the NBA. There are a few, you know, there's a few ABA games where that would qualify, but that would, um, you know, Pre nineteen eighty, that that wouldn't be a thing in the NBA. Exactly, yeah, and and even when the three point line is there, people still are kind of like, ah, I don't know, it's a risky shot all the way back there. Like I'm, I'm kind of good. So even though they had the ability to, and we talk even about these ABA games, some of these ABA games where you know there were a few three pointers made, but it was like you know two, <laughs> you know one or two were made. We're, we're not that many here. Uh, all time though, of course, this is going to rise up a bunch with you know the the proliferation of the three point line. Uh, three point one uh, three pointers made all time, and in 2019 we see that number spike all the way to five point nine uh, three pointers made in fifty point games. Uh, and then 
then lastly, average age uh, in this era, 1975 to 86, 26.1 uh, is your average age of your 50-point scores. Uh, All-time, 26.3. So it kind of falls right in line with uh, where we see that. Uh, this year, a little older, 2019, 28.4 this year for uh, 50-plus point games. So that number could go down a little bit more, again, with Devin Booker kind of coming in there, but uh, you know, scoring a bunch at, at a younger age. But uh, I find that kind of interesting that uh, 2019, uh, 28.4 is your average age uh, for 50-point games, where, yeah, 26 was kind of the, the norm uh, for, for this era and all time as well. Yes. Also, uh, just looking at the three-point attempts in all the NBA games post-1980, uh, there were only two instances where there were more than um, than five attempts in a game where Purvis Short and uh, Larry Bird uh, did so. So in most of them, there are either zero, one, or two attempts. So it definitely you know, still uh, fits what you were saying there where it's extremely rare except for a couple games where three-pointers are making any kind of difference. Yeah, and, and the line's there, but yeah, people are just not yeah, just not doing it. It's, right. it's, it's funny when you yeah. go back, like now because your brain is so used to like our modern NBA, but you go back and watch a game from the 80s and you'll see like a guy standing at the line, but then he gets the pass and he's like wide open and then he like takes two steps up and takes a shot you're like, what are you doing? Like, just like three, but I get it. Like, it's, it's, you know, if you're not trained that way, you're not ready for it. And you got a coach that's like, ah, it's not a good shot. Don't do that. Like, I, it's just, but it's hilarious to see, like, like in modern, like, you would imagine the coach would be so upset if this player, like, had an open shot at the three point line and then went in, like, four steps to, like, a mid range jumper. And usually they make them because, like, these guys were great at mid range jumpers, but it's just like, yeah, you can imagine, you know, coaches throwing out his clipboard now and being like, God damn it, what are you doing? Like, take that three pointer. But yeah, it's just, it's fascinating. Uh, definitely, yeah. So, wanted to get a little bit in John Williamson because he's just kind of a fascinating character. In um, during this time, you know, he uh, began his career as a star on the ABA Nets teams that won titles in '74 and '76. Uh, he was a burly physical guard uh, described by Stan Simpson of the Hartford Current uh, as stocky and cocky. The six foot two Super John had the muscular body of a fullback and the swagger of someone who thought he was the baddest man on the court. He had a shoot first, ask questions later mentality of scoring. And in Game 6 of the 1976 ABA Finals, he scored 16 points in the fourth quarter to seal a comeback win for the Nets against the Nuggets to give them the final ABA championship. Um, Super John was apparent was his nickname. Apparently a self-given nickname, although there are mixed reports on this. But honestly, oh. I think you... Uh, I, 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 yeah. <laughs> I don't like the self-given nicknames. I don't. Yeah, I think in this case, I think you have to be the exact right amount of cool to be able to pull this off. That's like, fair. You have okay. To, it, it, it's the it's a, sort of the combination of just the audacity versus the kind of the the self delusion plus the you know the swagger that you have and I think Super John is an exception to the don't give yourself a nickname um, rule corollary so we can you disagree on that but I guess I'll allow it. no I, I'll allow it for him I suppose I'm saying like yeah I guess like I am nowhere near cool enough to give myself a nickname but um, right. Okay, I, I'll allow it for, for for old Super John here. So I, I think like it, like I think if Super John is sort of like a better version of Deion Waiters. So I guess it depends on like how you would feel about <laughs> Deion Waiters giving himself a nickname. So I you know. Uh, well, yeah, I, I would probably accept that. it if Deion Waiters gave himself a nickname because it seems so bizarre right. and like he's such a weirdo that yeah, yeah that would kind of uh, like a weirdo in a good way. So yeah, I guess right. Okay, yeah, I'll, I, that's that's a good. Okay, you've you've won me over, uh, Super John. It right. is so fair enough. <laughs> Congratulations, yeah. Super John. So um, and then. In um, you know, he was he stuck with the Nets through the merger in the uh, NBA. Of course, they would lose uh, Julius Serving. Uh, and then one day after uh, Roy Bo, the Nets owner, sold the team, um, and Super John was 
Uh, this is from the New York Daily News uh, talking about some bizarre moments in Nets history. Uh, Super John was unpleasantly surprised to read in the uh, Star Ledger that he was one of the lowest paid Nets. Sitting in a stool, growing angry by the moment, uh, he threw down the newspaper and suddenly hurled an ice pack at the unsuspecting general manager. Um, months later, he uh, ended up uh, gaining a lot of weight and was shipped to a fat farm under the care of a trainer named Jack Spratt. So uh, some disagreements there. Um then he was traded to, from the Nets to the Pacers, um, clashed, not surprisingly, with the Indiana coach uh, Slick Leonard, walked out in the middle of a game in 1977. So in 78, he ended up being traded from the Pacers back to the Nets, who were now had gone from New York to New Jersey. Um, and uh, then he this is when he went on. He had a 50 plus point game and just went like on a, an incredibly weird scoring binge Um in his time with the Nets, he averaged um, 25.9 field goal attempts a game in 33 games, shot 45%, so not actually not too bad. And this is a, a team with Bernard King, by the way, who, of course, would not afraid to take a lot of shots even no. early on in his career. <laughs> Certainly not. But the only players who have averaged more field goal attempts in a full season. Now, granted, this is only 33 games, but still, uh, you know, this is looking at this list of guys who've taken this many shots over a full season. Um, Tiny Archibald, Rick Barry, Elgin Baylor, Kobe Bryant, Will Chamberlain, Joe Folks, Elvin Hayes, Allen Iverson, Michael Jordan, Pete Maravich, Bob McAdoo, Charlie Scott, and Jack Twyman. So some gunners there. So so some really underappreciated company in terms of you know amount of shots he was he took during that time, and he averaged twenty nine point five points per game during that stretch. So um, interesting point in his career. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I like those. That's a list. Of, that's a pure list of gunners right there, too. That's a hell of a team. I like I like that team. Right. That'd be a fun little team to watch. But uh, yeah, it is unquestioned gunners uh, throughout history yeah. right there. So yeah, and he definitely had something against the Pacers because he also had 38 in the other game that he played against the uh, Pacers there. So he definitely wanted to, you know, show up, probably show up Slick Leonard, I would imagine. <laughs> we all as we all would want to, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get it. So um, and then in uh, 79, he ended up getting into a brawl during practice with uh, newcomer Mike Newland, uh, of course, who would have his own 50 plus point game with the uh, Nets uh, there. And things kind of went sour with the Nets as he was there only until mid 1980. Then had a short stint with the uh, Bullets as he was out of the league at age 29. He gained weight and was out of um, playing shape. And there's a article from the L.A. Times 1987 that really kind of shows he had the sad point that he reached in his career. Um, it was cut short by contract squabbles and weight problems. Uh, with it went the 20-room luxury home and Mercedes-Benz. Uh, now 34, Williamson, wife Bertha, and four children leave three blocks from the projects. He grew up with 10 brothers and sisters. A broken-down car sits in the driveway. So sort of a sad uh, yeah. situation for him there. And then in uh, 1996, he ended up passing away at age 45 of uh, of, of kidney failure. So was surprised, survived by his wife and his uh, four children. So unfortunately, a sad post-playing career for Super John. But he certainly um, got in a lot of uh, on- and off-the-court antics during his career. Uh you know, he, he packed a lot into a short career. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So um, 1979 is uh, only three instances of 50 plus point games um, here. It's the uh, first time since 1954 that no single player had more than one. Um, also, the fewest number of 50 plus point games since 1958. But uh, in 58, there were only 300 regular season games. In 79, there were 902. So uh, many more instances uh, to uh, not only have a few, uh, uh, you know, have such a low rate. And in um, 57, this was the lowest rate since 57, which there were zero points, uh, 50 plus point games in that uh, time. So 
so only three uh so uh only three players do so and two of them are new members in the club Absolutely. Let's talk about those guys right now. So you have uh, number one, Truck Robinson. We'll talk about him. He started his career as a role player uh, on the Bullets team's immersion in 1977, splitting time with Washington and Atlanta uh, before uh, going over to the Jazz uh, as a free agent. Uh, two-time All-Star in 1978 and 81. Also one-time All-NBA first team in 1978. Uh, led the NBA in rebounding per game, uh, 15.7 in uh, 1978. Uh, becoming the first true forward to do so since Harry Gallatin in 1954. It's been quite a while since a, a forward uh, had done that. Uh, also the 18th most minutes played in any NBA or ABA season in 1978 when he had 3,638. That is a lot of seasons, uh, or a lot of minutes, I should say. Uh, things didn't go great in New Orleans for several reasons, including a feud with Pistol Pete. That's not a good thing if you're going to be on the New Orleans Jazz. Uh, so he pushed for a trade to Phoenix, uh, who at that time had Walter Davis, uh, Alvin Adams, Paul Westfall, and Don Bussey. So they had a pretty good team there. Uh, and then there's a quote here from an SI Vault article from 1979 said Robinson will hardly miss the jazz since he made it clear last uh, summer that he wanted to go elsewhere. Uh, much of what was made was this feud with Pete Maravich uh, that came about when Robinson's agent, Don Cronson, uh, was seeking to re- renegotiate Truck's contract, said the jazz have two set of rules, one for Pete and one for the rest of the players. Um Robinson said, I came into the situation where Maravich was all the people knew. Pete, Pete, Pete. Uh, you couldn't name five players on the Jazz before I got there. It was Pete and the rest of the Jazz. All of a sudden, I come in, a black player from the South, and it's Pete and Truck. A lot of people didn't care for that. So uh, he was one of four players to be traded during a season, uh, which they scored 50 uh, points. Uh, the others are Wilt Chamberlain, Carmelo Anthony, and Mo Williams. So that's a, an illustrious list of players and also Mo Williams. Uh, he was traded for Ron Lee, uh, who led the NBA in steals at that time. Uh, Marty Byers, two first-round picks and $500,000. Uh, he helped the Suns remain a contender in the early 80s. Uh, the Suns were one game from the NBA Finals in 1979 and had the best record in the West in 1981. Uh, but his departure with uh, Phoenix was filled with some acrimony uh, as he was traded to the Knicks for Maurice Lucas. Um, this also is from an NBA.com article about the history of, of the Suns and, and the history of the, you know, the Robinson trade. I uh, said so Robinson left little doubt in reporters' minds after Game 4 that he wanted out of Phoenix. After a month of attempting to strike deals with as many as six NBA clubs, Suns general manager Jerry Colangelo finally hit Paydirt on July 7th. He said Maurice Lucas plays a true power inside game. That's something we haven't. Uh, we haven't had. Uh, I'm only dealing in reality, not in speculation. The reality is that we now have a strong inside player. So Colangelo throwing some shade there at Old Truck. Uh, he finished his career with the Knicks and reunited with Hawks coach Hubie Brown, including the 1984 team that starred uh, the aforementioned Bernard King, as well as Bill Cartwright, Rory Sparrow, and Ray Williams. Unfortunately, that came during a decline in his numbers, and Nick fans would all uh, often chant, dump truck at Truck Robinson. So, uh, an interesting career kind of, yeah, sorry, uh, an interesting career kind of, you know, started and stopped. A lot of good stops and a lot of, like, good, but yeah, it was just issues with New Orleans, issues with Phoenix, just kind of issues uh, in many different places, unfortunately, for Truck Robinson, but but ultimately a pretty good career. Uh, and a man, I, uh, I have his autograph. I met him at a, uh, I was at a, a golf tournament once. It was like a celebrity golf tournament, and I, I just, you know, this massive man pulls up, and it's Chuck Robinson. I know nothing. I'm like 12 years old. I know nothing about Chuck Robinson. My dad knew who he was, though, so he's like, yeah, get that guy's autograph. I'll tell you about him later. I'm like, all right, and then I actually learned go. a lot about Chuck Robinson afterwards, but uh, very nice man, very large man, too, just an unbelievably large human being like especially right. as a 12 year, like in terms of height and girth and just yeah just a big big man truck is is certainly a good name for him yeah and he was only like i mean only six seven you know he was fairly undersized for um he was i guess a little bit like charles barkley where he was you know short but just was you know massive and and able to of course was a very good rebounder in that game in november of 78 he had um he had 51 points uh 16 rebounds and uh, 80 uh, true shooting percentage so High up there, obviously. Um, and John Drew was the other a member of the um, 
of the First Timers Club. We've talked about him quite a bit before, but uh, one note I thought was interesting is that he finished his career 49th all-time in points per game at uh, 20.69. So that's, uh, you know, he finished, even though it was a short career, he finished uh, a relatively short career. You finish in the top 15 points per game. That's pretty good in uh, NBA history. So... And then, uh, and then George Gervin would have another uh, fifty-plus point game um, in his uh, for the Spurs, of course, and uh, against the uh, Clippers. Uh, and yeah, those are the only three for that uh, season. So d- definitely not not, a, not quite as noteworthy as the previous season. No, no, no. We're starting to start to slow down a little bit too <laughs> in terms of like the numbers there, which is not many ones, but it'll ramp up a little bit here in nineteen eighty. So all is yes. all is well here in a minute. So. Yes, so we have a lot of newcomers to the club. Uh, we have uh, Adrian Dantley, um, Mike Newland, uh, Freeman Williams, and Larry Kennan, who all have fifty-plus uh, point games. Uh, Dantley was the was uh, the first in Utah Jazz history after the move. Of course, they had several in New Orleans. Um, Newlands we've talked about before, happening with the uh, Nets. I, and Freeman Williams also, I think we we talked about in the prior episode of unlikely names to uh, do so. He was for the first for the Clippers after the move from Buffalo. Um, and um, for Larry Kennan, uh, he was uh, he played for the Spurs at the time. Uh, he was known as Special K, although his other nicknames are listed as K, Doctor K, Mister K, Big Cat, and Super K. So uh, he was a rookie on the 1974 Nets title team. And uh, among two trades between the Nets and the Spurs in '76, in which eight players changed uniforms, and um, although the Nets were able to win a championship in '76, the Spurs had you know s- several key pieces, including Kennan, who ended up uh, you know becoming part of their stout, you know, late seventies, early eighties teams. Um, he shares the NBA record for most steals in a game, 11 with Kendall Gill and had a very rare points, rebound, steals, triple, double. Um, and, um, as a 6'9 forward, he was a five-time All-Star. Very good player. His first seven seasons averaged 19.7 points per game, 10.5 rebounds, 1.5 steals, uh, on 53 true shooting. So it, like you, you've, you've, you kind of prorate that career. You definitely as a, uh, a case for the Hall of Fame, but really fell off a cliff, unfortunately, after signing with the Bulls at only at age 28 in uh, the 1981 season. Uh, was out of the league two years after that came after he and Gervin averaged more than 20 points per game in four years as uh, as teammates. So um, it, not really any reason I could really find, um, you know, that he really fell off, you know, in particular, you know, obviously with players in that area, you think of drug issues, but I didn't really find anything um, regarding that. He just kind of just kind of fell off for whatever reason. So. Uh, no, no real super injury that I could see either. Just sort of just faded for whatever reason. Yeah. Well, the bulls, the bulls will do that. It happens. happens, Yeah. (laughs) Especially that era. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and then, and then the other guys who had 50 plus point games, we've talked about Dantley and also, uh, George Gervin had his fifth of his uh, career at a only at age 27. So, uh, so definitely also he had 55 points, uh, five rebounds, five assists. So a lot of fives there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so looking at into uh, 1981, uh, we have uh, six in that season as well. Uh, Adrian Dantley uh, has has another one, and then uh, another first timer new to the club, uh, Billy Knight, who has his uh, first 50 plus for the Pacers in the NBA. Yeah, so Billy Knight's a little bit about him. You, you, the name might uh, ring a bell to you. We'll get to that in a sec of why you, most people listening to this probably know about him, but uh, was a player as well. A scoring star, one-time All-NBA uh, all first team, uh, two-time All-Star for the Pacers in their final two uh, ABA seasons, as well as their first NBA season. Uh, as a rookie, he helped the Pacers reach the ABA Finals for the first time in uh, 1975. Uh, twice finished second in the league in scoring, which uh, that stinks. Maybe <laughs> twice the second in the league, but uh, never, never as good. But uh, was traded to the Braves uh, for rookie of the year, Adrian Dantley, after a contract dispute. 
dispute. I then went from uh, went to Boston uh, in the big Celtics Braves franchise swap, where the owners traded teams, and the Braves went to San Diego and became the Clippers. Uh, only 40, be- uh, 40 games played for Boston before re- being reacquired by the Pacers uh, in nineteen seventy eight for Rick Roby. Uh, I did not do- go uh, too great. He said I never told people how I felt, but obviously I wasn't enjoying myself. I didn't enjoy sitting on the bench. Once it started, I always wanted to leave. Uh, Bob Ryan in his autobiography said uh, Knight was a finesse player on offense and a non factor in every other facet of the game. He didn't defend, he didn't pass, and he didn't appear to work up a sweat ever. <laughs> so, not great. <laughs> but uh, he was named uh, the NBA Player of the Week uh, after his 52 point game against the Spurs. Uh, he never put up big numbers or minutes uh, in his early career. Uh, of his early career, though, he uh, he played four uh, four and a half more seasons uh, with the Pacers before finishing up his uh, career uh, with some short stints on the Kings and the Spurs. Uh, he worked in the front office with the Pacers and the Grizzlies before becoming uh, GM of the Hawks uh, in 2002, uh, leading their vaunted rebuilding effort and uh, fell in love with Fords. And unfortunately, Jason, sorry, he picked Marvin Williams over Chris Paul, but uh, he did get Al Horford too. So. Yeah, we'll give him that. Uh, but yeah, that, he definitely chose good. Marvin Williams over Chris Paul. But, you know, hey. Yeah, <laughs> and Sheldon Williams over uh, Brandon Roy. Yeah, so not, <laughs> the uh, Sheldon not, not Williams. all the good I forgot about there. Sheldon Williams. Yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, well, not great. Hey, Marvin yeah. Williams is still playing and, and still okay. But yeah, you yeah, probably would have okay, rather right. had Chris yeah. Paul, but that's fine. Yeah. That one yeah, doesn't look as bad, no. though. I mean, now that, it, like, you know, yes, it's, yes, for the Hawks, yeah. it still looks terrible. Uh, but, you know, it, it took like five or six years. But Marvin Williams got his career together pretty well. But now he's he's. Definitely not Chris Paul. Yeah. yeah. No, definitely not Chris Paul. No. Um, yeah. So the other players who uh, <laughs> get their first this season, uh, Bernard King and uh, and Moses Malone. Um, they uh, – and, of course, Bernard would have eight total in his career, uh, six during this era. Um, Adrian Dantley – and that was on January 3rd, 1981. Uh, just a few days later, Adrian Dantley um, has uh, 51, 5, and 7. Uh, and then he ends up, uh, he's 20 of 25 from the field, 11 of 11 from the free throw line. And he ends up breaking Wilt's NBA record for true shooting percentage in a 50 point game. There were a couple of ABA ones that were higher. Uh, this lasts through 1995, um, as we talked about. And then Dantley again has 55 points, uh, just about a month later in February of, uh, 81. And uh, Moses Malone has two in, or excuse me, I'm sorry. He has one to cap off the uh, season at the end of the season, 51 and uh, 19. The first 50 of his career, we'd have uh, four total. And then we'll have one in the next season, but we'll talk about that one in in a little bit. Um, uh, but yes, so again, we have six in the uh, 81 season. And then uh, and, and then in the 82 season, um, we... Um, we are new to the club. Only one member, uh, Ray Williams. Yeah, Ray Williams are only one. The young, younger brother of uh, Gus Williams, who we mentioned earlier on this show. Uh, he was a New York, uh, New York high school star. I uh, was drafted tenth overall by the Knicks in 1977, which is you know good. Get to stay home. Uh, spent his first uh, four seasons there and averaged 20.9 points per game, 5.0 rebounds per game, and 6.2 assists per game in 1980. He's one of 33 players who have averaged 25. Uh, and six in a season. Uh, in 1981, he helped uh, lead the Knicks to their first 51 seasons since 1973, and unfortunately, their last until 1989. <laughs> he was uh, he was joined by Bill Cartwright and Michael Ray Richardson on that team as well. Uh, got his 52 point game in his only season with the Nets, where he had signed as a free agent. Uh, the Knicks got Maurice Lucas as compensation. Uh, you're an NBA Player of the Week uh, during that week as well when he scored the 52. Uh, he then spent a year with the Kings before returning to the Knicks for the 1984 season. He helped lead them to the playoffs behind Bernard King, uh, Bernard, Bernard King's antics, and Bernard. King really kind of being the leader of that team. 
Uh, he then bounced around the league uh, after age 30 stints with the Celtics, uh, the Hawks, and the Spurs, and one more time with the Nets. Uh, unfortunately, though, he had a lot of post-career financial struggles. Uh, a, blo- a Boston Globe profile uh, revealed that he was unemployed and homeless in Florida. He did find work again uh, with the city of Mount Vernon, New York, and got back on his feet, but unfortunately, in uh, 2013, died at age 58. So uh, an unfortunate kind of end to uh, Ray Williams' career, but uh, I guess he, he got himself back uh, back on track there in, in the final few years of his life. But uh, yeah, unfortunate uh, Fortunate there, but uh, always yeah. as a few big years there, and yeah, that nineteen eighty four season definitely stands out as one that um, you know Bernard King was really the star, but Ray Williams is definitely a guy who who was there and and, and doing some good work for them as well. Yeah, and Cartwright and Troke Robinson we talked about earlier. Yeah. You know, they they had a lot of you know good players for this. The eighty one team was kind of a, a fun little blip. We talked about that during our Michael Ray Richardson episode, but um, you know Williams was a uh, he was a key part of that. It looked like he was kind of an emerging star, as we said. You know, he he had you know. Uh, some pretty big numbers early on and then just kind of faded uh, again you know, later on in his uh, career, though he had some pretty good contributions here and there. Um, I liked how he, he was tied to some other names we've talked about earlier, like Maurice Lucas. Uh, he was also traded for Billy Knight, who's part of the that Kings trade to the Knicks. also involved Billy Knight uh, going uh, – uh, being shipped off as well, so uh, a lot of a lot of the names that were are talked about in here are connecting with each other. Yeah, it's ways. strange. Every time we keep mentioning like the same, like Maurice Lucas and and yeah. and you know Gus Brooke Williams Robinson. and Truck yeah, Robinson, right. and, yeah, and Adrian Dantley's traded for everybody like every year. Right. It's just that it's, exactly. It's pretty yeah. interesting. Yes, that's uh, that's a fun one. So the uh, the games in A two Moses Malone uh, fifty three points and twenty two rebounds in. Uh, February of 1982. There's actually almost a nine-month gap between uh, 50-plus point games. Uh, as the first one's very late in 82. And this was the last 50-20 game before the year 2000. So we got 18 years w- without that. Uh, George Gervin has the last 50-point game of his career in uh, March of 1982. Um he was at that point. He was almost thirty years old. So I guess at that point, it's it's sort of I guess, you know, guys declined a little bit earlier on in this career during that era. So uh, that makes sense. Uh, Adrian Dantley, at only age twenty six, uh, has his fifth uh, fifty plus a point game. And then, as we talked about, Ray Williams having his in April of eighty two. So very near the end of the season. Um, and he was the seventieth player to uh, cross the fifty plus uh, point uh, threshold. So so interesting stuff there. Absolutely. And then in 83, we've got several uh, new uh, players as uh, three of the four uh, players are new to the club. Uh, we have uh, Larry Bird. You might have heard of. I've heard. Uh, yeah, Joe I, Barry, have, I have. Yeah. Right. Uh, Joe Barry Carroll. And then uh, Kelly Tribuca. Yes. Let's talk about Kelly Tribuca a little bit. Well, uh, selected 12th overall by the Detroit Pistons, 1981 draft. Same draft as uh, your favorite player of all time and your favorite executive of all time, Danny Ainge. So, oh, yes. Got, definitely make sure we favorite. get a Danny, yeah. Danny Ainge reference in there. I know we you're do. wearing your, your Danny Ainge jersey right now. Suns, right? Uh, today is your Danny Ainge Suns jersey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's in the rotation. I yeah. know. Your Trailblazers one has a stain on it, but you're, you're luckily right. Which is weird because it's black, but it's just right on that little, little white stripe. But yeah, you're, you're doing what you can. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. you're going to wash it. You'll, you'll have it on next time, I'm sure. Uh, but, definitely. Uh, Tribuca, along with Isaiah Thomas and Bill Ambeer, uh, helped lead the 1984 Pistons to their first playoff appearance since 1977. Uh, this kicked off a nine-year playoff streak that featured three NBA Finals appearances and two titles. Uh, Tribuca, uh, kind of an unheralded part of that team as well. He scored 20-plus per game uh, in four of his first five seasons with Detroit, and then also 19.1 uh, in the one that missed out. So that only that hardly seems fair, so I'm just going to count him as all. So we're going to give him one extra sure. point in that season, and yes, he scored 20 points per game in all of his seasons with Detroit. We'll go with that. Uh, he's one of six oh. Pistons to have... Uh, uh, 40 uh, or more in a playoff game as well, joining uh, Dave Bing, Isaiah Thomas, Jerry Stackhouse, Chauncey Billups, and Rip Hamilton. 
Unfortunately, though, Tripuka would not be with the Pistons when they made their trips to the finals. So I'm mentioning all this stuff about them going to the finals, but that does not include Tripuka because unfortunately he and uh, Kent Benson were traded to the Utah Jazz in 1986 for who else but Adrian fucking Dantley? Because, of course, everybody is traded for Adrian Dantley at some point. Uh, and also is. future Everyone, draft picks yeah. as well. So, yeah, there's the same seven people just traded for each other every year <laughs> for like the, the first 10 years of this decade here. But, um, uh, like Detroit, uh, Chapika was going to a budding contender, uh, but couldn't really find his fit, though, as Stockton and Malone had really kind of emerged as the keys to Utah. Chapika was just kind of a, an additional part that they really, uh, unfortunately, couldn't really find a good use for. Uh, he had been a consistent great scorer with Detroit, but uh, averaged only 9.1 points per game during his two seasons in Utah. So that's pretty disappointing there. Uh, in 1988, Utah traded Chapika to the expansion Charlotte Hornets. Uh, he immediately returned to form. Uh, he scored 22.8 points per game or 22.6 points per game. Unfortunately, uh, the Hornets were pretty not good at this point because they're an expansion team. And and when you have to rely on Kelly Chapuka to be your one and only scorer, probably not going to be a good thing. But hey, it, it, it kind of worked. Uh, well, in 1989, this is a fun little antidote here. Uh, he, uh, he played... Uh, Against Utah, uh, Carl Malone had wrote Frank on his shoes because uh, it, it was an homage to the recently resigned Frank Layden, who had just uh, resigned a few days prior. Uh, Trapuca, who obviously did not enjoy his time in Utah, wrote Dick on his shoe. Uh, to be fair, the Hornets coach at the time was a man named Dick Harder, which is an all-time great name, by the way. Why would you not go by Richard? But anyway, Dick Harder. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's that's a tough one. Different time. Um, so I mean, yes, he was writing it to you know as an homage to his coach Dick, but uh, yeah, I, I think I, can, yeah. I think Kelly was double dipping there a little bit, right? Like Maybe. I, I yeah. think you know I think it just so happened to be convenient that his coach was named Dick, but. Um, why not go by Richard Harder? You know what I mean? Like, no one's going to ever yeah. Rich Harder. You know, that's that's fine. Yeah. Go, why would you go by Dick? Like, um, unbelievable. Anyway, Trapuca retired after two years with the Hornets. So, yeah, that they had enough of that losing there. And and But what's interesting, though, is, like, if you want your team to be good for the next decade, you should get Kelly Trapuca. Because, like, he'll come, uh, he'll play, and then, like, he'll leave, and then you guys can be really, really good for, for a while after that. It's kind of what it seemed like the Kelly Trapuca thing was for a while there. Yes. So, um... Uh, a few highlights from 83 uh, Adrian Dantley 57 points has his uh, has his last 50 plus point game his career high he ended up with more 50 plus for the Jazz than Carl Malone did um, which I, I thought was kind of interesting uh, there um, and then um, as you mentioned Tripuka Joe Barry Carroll and then Larry Bird in uh, March of 1983 and he was already 26 years old by the time he had his first uh, 50 plus game which I, I thought was interesting of course he he started kind of late too so uh, that makes some sense but he was the fourth Larry after uh, Larry Jones Larry Kennan and Larry Miller to score um, 50 plus in a game so uh, <laughs> yes. yeah does Larry Hughes Tyler ever Larry's. I don't think Larry Hughes ever pops up again so I think no, uh, I no. think unfortunately yeah. Larry's are, are gonna gonna wind down a little bit just like our george's these good old good old classic names larry and george there yeah yes uh and then yeah speaking of a classic name uh new to the club in 1984 we have uh we have kiki vandaway and purvis short great names all-time great names here we'll start with kiki vandaway ernest maurice vandaway the third uh i could not find an origin story for kiki do you do you know offhand uh where the kiki thing came from I, i tried like hell and i cannot find it I, you know, I do not know. I'm sure that someone, one of our listeners must know, will tell us. You yeah, know, please do. said over and back NBA, you know, let us know if you can, if you can find that one. Yeah, I couldn't, yeah, that, I couldn't find anything, yeah. unfortunately, but uh, I like, Kiki right. is a much better name than Ernest Maurice Vandaway the third, but that, I don't know. I kind of like that. You know, that'd be real distinguished. Yeah. He has like a, you know, right. a handlebar mustache and a monocle. <laughs> He's going yeah. out to the, but I guess Kiki sounds, you know, a little bit more contemporary there, but I uh, drafted 11th overall by the uh, Dallas Mavericks in the 1980 draft, refused to play with Dallas at that time and demanded a trade. Uh, they did. They 
they acquiesced. They traded him. Uh, they traded him to Denver. And the 1981 pick that Denver gave up in that trade uh, ended up being Rolando Blackman, who uh, ended up leading Dallas to uh, multiple playoff appearances, becoming one of the iconic players of the Mavericks. And, uh, yeah, six playoff trips with Rolando Blackman. So a pretty good deal for both yeah. ends then, I would say, because, right. of course, Kiki Vandeway would kick off and, and become a really good player uh, all time for the Denver Nuggets as well. Uh, the first of Kiki's uh, 50 points, career high 51, came in the highest scoring game in NBA history, which we talked about many times. Uh, 186-184 triple overtime game against the Pistons. Uh, his next 50-point game came January 1984 uh, in a 163-155 win over the Spurs, which at that point had been the highest uh, scoring regular season game uh, of all time. We're going to get into a little bit more of these these Doug yeah. Mo nuggets here in a little bit with Alex English, who, who pops up next year. But um, Yes. You by you mean regulation games? A uh, regulation, so, not regulation. Not, sorry, not sorry, sorry. Game. Regulation games. Yeah. Is, is what I meant to yeah. say. Uh, after this, uh, Vandaway moved to Portland in 1984. He teamed with Clyde Drexler uh, to form a formidable Trailblazers team. Uh, unfortunately, he had a career-altering back injury in 1988 and lost a starting job to Jerome Kersey. Uh, then, obviously, Portland would go on to you know make their NBA Finals with Rick Adelman and whatnot. And and Kiki would unfortunately not be uh, a, a big part of that, uh, of course, if, because of his injury. Uh, and despite his great career, he he may be well known or a little bit more known even to to a lot of people listen to this as an executive. Uh, he was the Nuggets general manager through the uh, Carmelo Anthony era uh, and spent some time as the New Jersey Nets GM as well. And today he is the executive vice president of basketball operations for the NBA. So I think you only hear about him when there's like suspensions going down. <laughs> and like, yeah, I think he's right. the guy that has to yeah. rule on the suspensions. And I think he, he also rules on some other, you know, different plays and stuff. But uh, you hear his name every so often when like Jermaine Green gets suspended. <laughs> and, and, you know, he's the guy that has to, you know, hand down that suspension. I think that that I remember Kiki getting a lot of mention during the Draymond Green is, is kicking everybody in the nuts. Uh, Thing going on a few years ago, yeah, where, where Kiki yeah. had to had to rule on. All right, how are we going to suspend this guy for continuing to kick people in the nuts? You know, right. which appeared to be unintentional, but had happened far too many times to be completely on you know ignored. So right. uh, yeah, Kiki had to had to get down and, and, and decide how to suspend him for that one. So right. when you th- when you think of people kicking each other in the nuts, you think of Kiki, <laughs> right? You know? Exactly. So, so it worked out pretty well. Yeah. So. Right. Yeah. So Kiki's first um, fifty plus point game actually was fifty one nine and eight. So flirting with a triple double there. Uh, Purvis Short had one in January of 84, 57, and 15. This was the first of his career. We talked about him and our unlikely um, ep- unlikely players to have 50-plus uh, episode. And then uh, Kiki had a second in January of 84. And then Bernard King has a couple uh, in um, – uh, actually, uh, back-to-back games uh, in January 31st, 84, and February 1st, 84. Um and uh, was the first for the uh, to do so for the Knicks in 1968, and then becomes the fifth player with back-to-back 50s, along with uh, Will Chamberlain, Elgin Baylor, Rick Barry, and John Brisker. Some others have joined the uh, list. We'll uh, we'll be compiling that that whole list uh, sometime in the uh, future because it's definitely an interesting one. Um, yeah, and that's pretty much it for the '84 season. Yeah, we're, we're, we're yeah, it's, <laughs> it's just we're not a lot. Yeah, yeah, there's just you know people aren't scoring. Yeah, we're trying. But... So yeah, so. 85, Moses Malone, uh, again, 51 and 17. Always is going to have a lot of rebounds in these situations. Uh, Purvis Short has another one, uh, 59 and uh, 5 with an 84 true shooting percentage in uh, in this game for the Warriors. He was uh, 20 of 28 from the field and 4 of 6 from the free throw line. So uh, this, I think, was one of the very few where, yeah, he was 4 of 6 from the uh, three-point line. So this was the um, – oh, I'm sorry. He was 4 of 6 from from three and 15 of 16 from the free throw line. That makes more sense. So <laughs> I like um, it the other way, though. I like it. Yes. <laughs> That's an incredible – it's just so, like, all right, I guess he's launching. All right, let's go. Uh, like, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, and then Bernard King uh, has a few more. Uh, he, in fact, um, yes, from, from November of 84 to – to, to uh, excuse me, February of 85, he has three. 
including the first um, 60-point game since 1978, of, the, of course, the Griffin-Thompson duel, and then the first Christmas 63rd on um, 50, and then uh, and then joins the the 5-plus club with that one, and then um, February of 85, not long before the injury that unfortunately would derail uh, his career, he would come back you know, a few years later and, and have some success, um, but uh, at 55, 11, and 13. Uh, and then with his 50, 50 plus in two seasons, he actually more than doubled the Knicks franchise total uh, from four to nine uh, at that point. So yeah, I thought that was go. pretty interesting. Yeah. And then um, and then Kevin McHale has the first of his career, uh, 56, uh, 16 and four with three blocks, uh, 83 true shooting percentage. And then um, that's it's a Celtics record. But then nine days later, Larry Bird would break that with a uh, 60. Um, seven and three performance this was against the hawks but this was actually in uh new orleans and very famous video of uh the uh the hawks bench players just going nuts with the some of the crazy shots that larry bird was uh hitting in that game it's another one of the uh games well, actually it was only a one of four from three points in that game there was another one uh, later on in the next season where he's gonna take a few three-pointers so yeah this is the, i think the only uh of mikhail's career correct the, this 56 yes. yeah one, first and yeah. only for for mikhail so who, who again is like an unlikely i would consider him kind of an unlikely one too because you don't see him as like a dude that's just like getting down for 50 points you know guy that just kind of yeah. he feels like a 22 points a game score the guy just does a bunch of other stuff uh in the court but not necessarily a guy who, you know can explode for 50 yeah. but he did here so and he was capable of it but again you know with you know um bird and parish being in there and other scores you, you know they were a team where that wasn't going to happen a whole lot just because of the circumstance if, where he, if he played for like the bullets or something he he probably would have had you know a few in his right career. of course yeah 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 uh so our final year of looking into this era is 1986 and um we have uh, a few players notable uh new to the club um so two of them are going to be hugely familiar names that we're going to go to in the next era, Dominique Wilkins and Michael Jordan. And the other definitely familiar name, although not not quite as many, but uh, interesting point of his career for him to accomplish this, Alex English. Yeah, let's talk about Alex English a little bit. You've heard of Dominique, and I think you know about that Michael Jordan guy. So let's let's go on to Alex English here. Uh, averaged only 10.8 points per game. His first three seasons in the league, he was with Milwaukee and Indiana. Milwaukee at that point, a very good team as well. So it's kind of interesting when you see, like, you know, if you ever go look at rosters and you're like, Alex English, like, what, he's on that team? Like, what the hell? Like, this should be great. But he wasn't really, I mean, they were good, but he wasn't, you know, as what he would become. I uh, move on to the high powered offensive uh, Denver Nuggets and become one of the most prolific scorers uh, in the NBA in this era and really in the NBA history. We'll talk about it a little bit. Uh, led the league in scoring in 1983, uh, beating out teammate Kiki Vandeweghe by nearly two points uh, per game. Uh, English also led the league in field goal attempts uh, at uh, 1,854, uh, which is a full 286 field goals above second place Mark Aguirre uh, that season as well. Uh, even more incredible, though, English took only 12 three-pointers all year. So you think, oh, my God, this guy's scoring all over the place. He's shooting all these shots. Like, of course, he's got to be shooting three-pointers. He was two of 12 from three that entire season. And he only made 18 three-pointers his entire NBA career, even though he played with the three-point line uh, during most of this era. But that's not what the Nuggets' high-powered offense was. You would think high-powered offense. Yeah, three-pointers. No, not really. They were doing a bunch of other stuff. They were just running like crazy and shooting as quickly as they could, but not always three-pointers. Um, 
During his 10 season with the Nuggets, English played in eight straight All-Star games and led uh, Denver to nine consecutive playoff berths as well. Uh, first player in history to string together eight straight 2,000-point seasons as well. Uh, he is still the Nuggets' all-time leading scorer, also the Nuggets' all-time leader in games, minutes played, field goals, assists, and points per game. Uh, known as Iron Man as well because he missed only five games between 1980 and 1990. Uh, and he, unfortunately, was the highest-scoring player left off the 50 greatest players list in NBA history uh, when they did it in uh, 1996. So he was left off that list even though he was was yeah the highest scoring player that you know that that didn't make it there on uh, some fun facts about english he had three books of his poetry published and also uh during his playing days he appeared in a movie called amazing grace and chuck a film about the threat of nuclear war that started gregory peck and jamie lee curtis i don't think i've ever seen that but now i kind of have to see it because alex english is in it so i don't know is it good or uh, have you ever seen amazing grace and chuck I have not. I'm going to imagine that it wasn't very good, but oh, you know, stop. maybe. Let me hold on a minute. Let's see what IMDb we'll has see. to say about it. It's got Gregory Peck and Jamie right. Lee Curtis. Come on. There's no way it's bad. Yeah. Come on. Uh, all right. Fair <laughs> yeah. enough. Well, while you're looking at that, I'll talk a little bit about just the, the games of that season. As we mentioned, Alex English, um, 54 and uh, 4. And um, he becomes. Uh, he was one of the oldest to have their first uh, 50 plus point game. He was 31, almost 32 at this point. Uh, so interesting that he had it so late in his uh, career. Um, uh, Larry Bird has another one, 50, 11, and 5. And then Dominique has his first two in uh, the first one is very, is near the end of the regular season, April 10th, 86. He has 57. Um, this actually ends up being his career high. And then, um, and then, in the playoffs, uh, he has uh, 50 uh, and 5. He has the first 50-point uh, playoff game since 1975, the 19th in NBA history. And then just one day later, Michael Jordan has uh, 63 uh, against the uh, the vaunted 1986 Celtics. Of course, we've had a, have an whole episode talking about that game. It was the first 60-point playoff game since the 62 Finals. And yeah, Jordan's first 50-plus point game, which a little, little surprising that he, he hadn't had one. I mean, he... Of course, it was only his second season. He'd been injured a lot of the season. You know, the, the fact they didn't have one at a rookie, you know, slightly surprising. But I guess, you know, again, most rookies don't have that many. And he was sharing the ball a little bit with some other guy, with some other gunners. So, um, you know, I guess given the context, a little bit less surprising. But, you know, he's going to have plenty coming up. So, uh, you know, he yeah, that, have started off, you know, he'll have a few. Yeah, and that, and that team was like he came onto that team, and there was some like old guys that were just like, "Nah, man, you you know, like there was you know a little bit of ten, uh, tension there with the guys like Orlando Woolrich and and Quinton Daly and those sort of guys that like you know this young upstart Michael Jordan is going to come in, and they know that he's going to like take their job and <laughs> dominate this franchise. So I think there was also a thing too where if he just went out there and right. just became like an unabashed like gunner in a game that he probably would have I don't know he would have gotten a, a, a stern talking to in the in the in the uh, in the locker room after the game. And there, there's a reason why all those guys were, were jettisoned like immediately. <laughs> and then right. the team was just handed over to Jordan. And then of course he's going to pop up a bunch more times, but uh, I get it. He's kind of playing the political game there a little bit. Cause uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that'd be a good story for, you know, 20 run year old Michael Jordan, just go out there and just gun for 50 points on, on the, the team that he was on. But uh, yeah, he would, he would get there eventually after a few more years. So yeah, wouldn't take too long. So yes, he joined Bob Cousy, Billy Cunningham, Julius Irving, Roger Brown, and John Havlicek as players who had their first or only 50-plus uh, point in, in the playoffs, and Sleepy Floyd would join them the next season, and that, that I believe is the complete list. So, um, so interesting times there. All right, so I have a little bit on this amazing uh, Grace and Chuck. It actually sounds like a pretty good movie. It, it, a five point nine out right. of ten, though, so it doesn't sound very good. But yeah. uh, essentially, yeah. what it was is there is a uh, an American kid who's a uh, he's a 
a little league pitcher and he takes a tour of a nuclear silo and he decides that he is going to not play little league baseball until the silo uh, is shut down and nuclear weapons are disarmed. He doesn't want any nukes in his country, in his world. Uh, and then Boston, Boston Celtics player, amazing Grace Smith, who is Alex English, hears about this and also does the same. I'm not going to play basketball until you uh, disarm all the nuclear weapons. And then it's kind of uh, one by one. And it's like these famous people not doing what they're going to do until nukes are, are, are disarmed. So it actually sounds like a pretty uh, inspiring story. Yeah. That, that sounds pretty good. Apparently it's not that good though. I don't know. I, now I'm kind of interested about it it though 5.9 out of 10 but uh it sounds like a good premise so i'm into it red auerbach's in it too so that's good oh well yeah there you go fred's in it obviously that's uh uh, you know with you know red and round ball acting that he did yeah i'm sure he's (laughs) i'm sure he's great i'm sure he's awesome yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) all right well this is the end of this era of course we're going to be diving into uh the michael jordan era uh pretty soon as you know he's going to be amassing quite a few of these and other players of course are going to join him as well into in the uh late 80s and uh into the late 90s so that's gonna be fun hopefully everyone is enjoying uh the series you can of course uh find us at um the step back at fansided.com and you can also find us on twitter and facebook at over and back nba uh you can subscribe rate and review on itunes stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast we always appreciate uh, a good rating and review and uh feedback from our listeners so uh thanks for listening and we'll be back again soon This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.